0: To another episode of Out of the Blank podcast. Hope, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. You have a wonderful name. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Sure. I'm Hope Anderson. um I am a documentary filmmaker and writer, and I'm based in Los Angeles. And in uh, 2009, I made a documentary called Under the Hollywood Sign, which was a cultural history of Beechwood Canyon, which is where the Hollywood Sign is located. And um, I That's how I got interested in the neighborhood and various things happened. I started a blog writing about the history of the neighborhood and to promote my documentary after it was made and things kept happening. And that's how Howard Hughes comes into it. But you can get to that later.
0: Yeah, we're uh, we're gonna the main topic. Well, one of the topics is gonna be Howard Hughes, but I really want to talk about your documentary because through looking at your site and then coming across that you made this documentary, I was why did you choose the Hollywood sign? I mean, most people make a documentary about like something that has like actions or explosions or or something like Three Mile Island or something, but I think what you probably found out was looking deeper at the history of the Hollywood sign. There's a lot of fascinating things about it. Right. Well,
1: the Hollywood sign. It wasn't the entire documentary, so. Under the Hollywood sign was really about my neighborhood, which is called Hollywoodland. And the reason Hollywoodland exists is because it was the first hillside planned community in Southern California, and it was developed in 1923. So most of the houses, the original houses here were built between 1923 and 1925, but they were still selling lots so they built the, Hol- the original Hollywood sign was built in 1923 as a billboard for the neighborhood. It wasn't a tourist attraction. It was just like a lighted billboard and it was very flimsy and it was supposed to last like two or three years. And it, th- but it was never taken down and it did not become a symbol of Hollywood until much, much later. And it's gone through these various phases. And of course the sign you see today is a replica of the original sign. It looks like the sign, it's nothing like the sign. I mean, it's heavily engineered. It will not move. It, it would survive anything because it is attached um, to caissons, which are dug into the rock. And this whole neighborhood is built on about a hundred feet of granite bedrock. So it just doesn't move. I mean, it's one of the great perks of living here is that you don't feel earthquakes. Um, I mean, maybe some people do if they live on the floor, but I'm, I live on a, hill on a shelf that's cut into this rock. And I've felt one earthquake in in 19 years. So the Hollywood sign as it is today is, is not only incredibly well built and permanent, but it has morphed into this huge tourist attraction and this huge symbol. And it became, oddly enough, a symbol of the film industry, which was never meant to be. It was just a real estate billboard. In the beginning, but when I I wanted to move to this neighborhood for many, many years, and when I finally did, I knew something about the neighborhood, but I didn't know when I started to make this documentary that it was just going to be this huge, you know, two and a half year process and that I would find like so many incredible things about it, both modern and pre-modern, because this Canyon has been inhabited for thousands of years. I mean, it was inhabited by Tongva Indians long before it was inhabited by the Spanish, and and you know, and then the Americans who came in the 19th century. So it's gone through all of these changes itself. So the Hollywood sign is a part of my documentary. It's it wasn't the it wasn't the reason for it. I really wanted to make a cultural history of Beechwood Canyon.
0: Can I ask why that the Hollywood sign became a symbolistic thing for Hollywood or why that's even become iconic as a it's like what everybody knows whenever you're talking about going to L.A. to go make a movie, everyone imagines the Hollywood sign in their head.
1: Right, exactly. And that really has to do with the suicide of Peg Entwistle, who was a young actress, and she jumped off the sign in 1932. And it was really tragic because, and, and her story was very, very uh, badly mangled. And she became this, oh, you know, wannabe starlet who didn't have any talent. That wasn't true. She was an amazing person and I tracked down her family. So a big part of the documentary was the story of Peg Entwistle and the, the real story, which was that she had a moment, you know, she, things were going badly for her. She wanted to get back to New York. She had been a Broadway star. So she was a leading, rising ingenue on Broadway. She'd made her Broadway debut. She had played in Boston. She had done Ibsen. You know, she was a really serious actress. But she came out here not just because she wanted to become a movie star, really not primarily, but her family was here. Her family was living in Beechwood Canyon, and she was supporting them. So it was they were putting a lot of financial pressure on her and she got a movie role, but she had a one movie contract and it's a terrible movie, Um, but she was good in it. I mean, she was, you know, it was a B movie. Um, It was. It it was a ridiculous movie, so she was fine in it. Uh, Thirteen Women. I hope it's 13 and not 12. I haven't thought about it for a long time, but you can see it sometimes on Turner classics. And it's, it's, they just threw all these actresses in it. It was kind of like a dumping ground, you know, kind of like when they used to make women in prison movies. Well, this was like a, a, you know, women's, you know, horror movie, kind of a, well, kind of a mystery movie, but there's, you know, they, people get killed in it. So she doesn't have very much screen time because her character gets killed off pretty quickly. But she's good in it, particularly since she had never acted in movies before. She was a stage actress. So the the techniques are completely different on the stage, but she did really well. But what happened was, you know, she got really depressed. And 1932 was a terrible year. Um, it was the trough of the Great Depression. And she she couldn't get back to New York. I mean, if somebody had given her the train fare, she would have been back and she would have been OK. But things were going badly. She was divorced. I think she might have been blackmailed by her ex-husband. Um, and w- for whatever reason, she decided to end it all. And she ended it all, not because the Hollywood sign meant anything. It didn't mean anything. It was just the most convenient place she could jump from where she would be certain to be killed because it's very, very high up. And, and it was in her neighborhood. So like, imagine, it's kind of like, you know, you have an oven, and you know <laughs> your yeah, home, yeah. and that's convenient. Well, she had the Hollywood sign because she lived, you know, two miles away from it, and it was within easy walking distance. And nobody stopped her. I mean, if anybody saw her um, and had spoken to her, she probably wouldn't have done it. You know, it was suicide by jumping, which I also research is a very impulsive thing. So people get fixated on, like, it's, people get fixated on the Golden Gate Bridge. They will never kill themselves in any other way, and they will never kill themselves on any other bridge. And a lot of them are super specific, and they won't kill themselves off of just any part of the bridge. They have a fixation with one part of the bridge. So she was fixated on the sign, but it's the only time it's ever happened. But she did die. And then, you know, over the years, this myth grew up that she was this, you know, poor you know, symbol of Hollywood. But what was infuriating to me was that her family didn't step in and say, hey, she wasn't some bimbo. She was a real actress and she had a bad day, but you know, she would have meant something. And oddly enough, the only person who remembered her and defended her publicly in all the intervening years was Betty Davis. Because Betty Davis had seen Peg Entwistle in Ibsen's The Wild Duck, in uh, Boston when she was 18 years old. So, you know, this was in the 20s. And Betty Davis said to her mother, I want to become an actress. And they went to Hollywood and she became a famous actress. And the difference between her and Peg was that she made, uh, Betty Davis made 40 bad movies before she made a good one. And Peg made one bad movie and, and gave up. But she just, she Betty just didn't, Davis have, proper about her. She just didn't mm-hmm. have
0: proper guidance. She just didn't have proper guidance. Um, She didn't. yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. And the thing, here's what Betty Davis had. Betty Davis had her mother. Her mother was her tireless advocate, gave up everything, gave up her marriage, gave up her money, gave up her house. And she was a well to do Boston, you know, socialite. And but everything was about her daughters. She had another daughter, too, who was an actress. But they came out here and they stuck to it. So she had a supportive family. Peg had a family that was, you know, trying to get money out of her, frankly. And, but I did, um, I did meet her, her younger half brother. And he was a very nice man, Milton and Twistle. And, you know, he had very vague memories of her, but he was able to kind of fill me in on the family. But the thing is that she was orphaned. So she was being raised by her aunt and uncle. So Milt was the was he the nephew? I... No, he was her half-brother. They were all orphaned. So that's why they were living with their father's brother and his wife. And they had been actors, too, but they had pretty much stopped working. So they were depending on Peg for everything, including the support of the house that they had. So it was, it was an overwhelming burden for her. But, yeah, she had nobody. So that's how the sign became this weird symbol of Hollywood, just because of her suicide.
0: But you don't ever hear that. Like, I mean, obviously the cultural memory of it is like that's there. It's the symbol of Hollywood. And when it gets shown in movies, it's all in positive aesthetic views of things. It's never mentioned that story about her.
1: Well, sometimes people do. A a lot of people are kind of obsessed with her. And I know this because I actually, you know, I, I made a separate documentary. I pulled it from under the Hollywood sign. And it's just about Peg Entwistle. So it's a it's a short film that I did on her. It's called Peg Entwistle's Last Walk. And it's it's about her her suicide. And then I also did the documentary section on her where I interviewed her family. That's in there. And some people just buy that because they're not interested in the rest of the, the film. So it's it's locally very well known. I don't know about nationally. I mean, you know, of course it's such a long time ago now, you know, we're t- And we're talking 90 years, so I don't really think more than 90 years now. So I don't really think that most people care. I mean, I do historical documentaries, and I can tell you, Americans do not care about history.
0: Uh, Trust me, I'm in the JFK subject, so I can tell you, I can agree with that. There's a lot of people that don't care about it.
1: You know, they just, and they, they have a very poor grasp of history. And part of it is because history is taught very badly in school, if at all. I kind of think they've taken it out of some schools and you know this is why people are so ignorant but when i went to school i went to public high school in ohio and um the history teachers were always football coaches and and that's not to say football coaches aren't smart they are but they were primarily football coaches i mean they weren't you know they didn't have phds in history so it was taught in this very rote way and nobody liked it and it was boring so people you know I majored in history and I found, I majored in Japanese history, that's another story, but it's, it, it was fascinating to me. I mean, there was never a moment where I thought I should have a more interesting major. It was, it was fascinating and I still consider myself a historian. And what was great about making documentaries was that I was able to be a, a more democratically oriented historian because when you're an academic, you only reach you know, an elite group and I didn't like that. I wanted to reach everybody. And, um, you know, in my documentaries, I think I've reached a broad swath of people from all walks of life and, you know, all interests. I mean, some of my, I made a documentary on Jim Thompson. That was my first documentary. And he was an American who started the Thai silk in- industry in Thailand. And he was this amazing guy because he was the head of the OSS in, the, in Thailand oh, after the okay. war. Go and right. he was drummed out because he was leftist and um so there was all this political intrigue but a lot of people who buy that documentary are really interested in the whole spy aspect what did he do during the war you know what uh, you know was was he what did his did his activities political activities continue after he became a silk magnet and um so i get these you know i get like a lot of foreign service people who like to buy that documentary and then the Hollywood sign documentary, you know, I get a lot of people locally who are interested and want to give it as gifts and, um, you know, people who just like Los Angeles history in general.
0: Besides Peg's family, who else did you interview when it came to, I mean, deciphering what's the myth and then what's the real story behind her? Like, where'd you go for sources, information? I mean, was it well-known? Was it all easily access of information?
1: Well, oddly enough, I was contacted by um, a guy named James Zarek and. In- he was completely obsessed with Peg Entwistle. And he, so I gave him a credit on my movie and I used uh, some of his research and he, you know, helped me with sources. He was able to find amazing amounts of um, just artifacts from her career, like playbills, pictures. And then her family showed me all their family pictures. And she was very well photographed. I mean, even as a child, she was, there was a lot of stuff. So James eventually wrote a book about Peg Antwistle, but, you know, we parted ways because I felt that he said some nasty things about me. And also I felt that his obsession with Peg was was very weird because she's dead and has been dead for a long time. And he sort of behaved like she was his girlfriend, a lot, you know, living girlfriend. And that, that was really like, way out there for me, you know, and I would say, you do realize that she's not your girlfriend, right? But to him, she was just this real person who had a relationship with him and he had a relationship with her and it drove him. I mean, the stuff that he came up with was amazing. He just, I don't know how he found some of the things, but he would go to into archives and he could read microfiche for eight hours at a time, you know, that kind of thing. So there was a lot of the stuff that I got from him, particularly photographs that I wouldn't have found on the, you know, otherwise. But I was also doing a bunch of other things. You know, I was I was researching the Hollywood sign. I was researching the Hollywood Reservoir. There was a whole section on William Mulholland um, who built the the Lake Hollywood, which is the reservoir here. And so, you know, I would, and I was also interviewing, you know, living people in Beachwood Canyon who were telling me about the history. So, yeah, how
0: did you get Hugh Hefner? That's crazy. Was he, was he like, I mean, I, I never got, obviously get to meet him, but I know the stories and the myth that, that's built up around the man. But what was that like?
1: Well, it was really weird. Well, first <laughs> thing, the, the Playboy mansion is,
0: is, it's crap. It's decrepit. It's
1: really off, depressing on yeah. the inside. I mean, on the outside, it's still, it was still impressive. So, you know, you have you drive up there and you have to like there's a rock there, there's like a gate and then there's a big rock and you talk into the rock and that's where the intercom is. So everybody, everybody knows that you talk to the rock to get into the Playboy Mansion. They open the gates and I wanted to see the zoo. You know, they had a zoo there and I was like, please, can I see the zoo before we get started? And our handler said I could not see the zoo. And most of the animals, I think, were gone at that point. But I think there were some peacocks. We could hear peacocks, and so I was bitterly disappointed. I did not want to see the grotto, but I did get to see that. Uh, did you that wear gloves?
0: Gross. Did you wear gloves?
1: No, I didn't get near it. I was like, Ew. it looked very, <laughs> very uh, skanky to me. And then we went in the house, and the, there's a room that's completely set up for for filming. It's it's lit. And that created problems for me because um, it's basically like a TV studio, you know, and I'm used to dealing with normal light. And so we had a lot of technical problems because of that. But, you know, he was very nice. And, you know, I got a chance to talk to him. I have a picture of me with him. And, um, you know, he was a nice old man. And he was he was quite, you know, I think he was kind of. I think he had the dwindles at that point. I mean, he was he was fine. He was lucid. But, you know, he had a spiel and he gave it and it was about his role in saving the Hollywood sign. And, you know, he had told this story many times before about being approached and giving the money for the why and he wanted to help and all that kind of stuff. But he's a, you know, he doesn't get he, the thing about that house that's interesting is that unlike my house, it doesn't have a view. I, I mean, I think the whole thing in Los Angeles is to live in a house where you have a view of something. Right. there's no view from that house. So he never saw the Hollywood sign on a regular basis or anything else, really. He just saw the trees on his estate. But apparently he would occasionally go out and be driving and see this crumbling Hollywood sign. And it was so depressing in the 70s and and 60s and 70s because it was falling down. I mean, pieces of it would fall down because it wasn't anchored to anything. There were these big telephone poles behind it and that was how they were holding those letters up. And it gets very windy up there. So, you know, the signs, the, the letters would fall down and it was all decrepit. And he would say, Well, I've, you know, they've got to do something. And so it really wasn't until the sign was rebuilt that it became this monumental thing. And I I've thought about it a lot. You know, people are like, Why is it, you know, it, oh, it's just a, a symbol of Los Angeles, like the Eiffel Tower is a symbol of Paris. Or the Empire State Building as a symbol of New York, but it differs from every other monument in that it's a blank slate. You know, I mean, when you look at it, like I filmed up there, it's just like standing in front of a metal fence. It's there's no magic. The magic when you're up there is looking down, this amazing view of Lake Hollywood and Hollywood and all of Los Angeles. And but the reason people love the sign is that they're the star. You know, when you go to the Eiffel Tower, the Eiffel Tower is the star. You're, you know, an ant standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. When you stand in front of the Hollywood sign and you, you know, you're way down there to get the Hollywood sign in the background and you're posing, you know, you're the big star. You might not have been discovered yet, but, you know, you're the important thing. The Hollywood sign is just a backdrop for you and your dreams and your conceits. And people, it's amazing. I mean, I see this happening every day. People come up here, they stand in the middle of the street. Um, so you get the sign directly behind them. And the if they're women, they they always dress and do their hair and makeup. I mean, they're they put some thought into their outfit. And some of the men too. I mean, it's it's not a spontaneous thing, you know. They are there to be the star. And the Hollywood sign is just the perfect blank slate for them.
0: I'd wear a suit if I was going to take a picture in front of would it. You? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, would you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, has, uh, has it had any, I guess, political turmoil on it? Like any debates about wanting to build something there or change it out or do something different? I would have to think. No, I mean, no. Had this-
1: I mean, people have vandalized it at times, you know, and made, you know, like at one point, you know, it was somebody got up there and changed the, a few of the letters and made Holly weed. You know, I mean, it's happened a bunch of times, but, the, you know, as a prank. But the thing is that there's no there's no way anything is going to go up there because it's part of Griffith Park, and Griffith Park is the largest municipal park in America. It's a huge, huge swath of of wilderness, basically. I mean, you can go hiking and get lost and get in real trouble up there, and there are wild animals. Um, and it's a it's it's protected land, all of it. And the part that we gave that the Hollywood Land gave to the city you know, that contains the sign is similarly protected, so they can't build it. It's, it is, it is part of Griffith Park. So um, it is completely protected and always will be. Now with
0: your website as well too, I don't want to call it a blog because it's a little bit more than that. But when, when you write, like when you're looking deeper into this, you're coming across like various names and that it leads you down another interesting rabbit hole. I'm guessing, right? I mean, that's usually how these things happen They right. kind of spread out.
1: Were you looking at the WordPress? Yeah, um, your
0: WordPress. Okay. so I didn't want to call it a stopped, blog. That's kind of
1: rude. It, yeah, it turned out it was like a full-time job for a few years. So I was just trying to promote my documentary, um, which, you know, and then it turned into this whole thing where I was able to explore the various subjects in the documentary at much greater depth and And it went on and on and on for about twelve years. And then I switched to Substack. So now I'm on Substack, under the same name, under the Hollywood sign. But Substack's a little different because a, I get paid um somewhat. And then I also am able to write longer form articles on and I'm more I'm writing more about film now. So film criticism, TV sometimes. I write a lot about Japan. Um, which was my area of academic interest. And also I grew up there. So I write about Japanese culture, Japanese literature, um, Japanese film. So it's a little, I'm not doing the local history because I, I, I kind of think I did it, you know, and, but I—and and I wasn't getting paid for the WordPress stuff but I left it up there. So it's not something that I'm actively working on. I wish people would subscribe to my Substack instead. Um, but you know, I may be talking to different audiences because a lot of people just Google Hollywood sign and they read what I've written about the Hollywood sign, and then you know they used to write me angry letters about how they wanted to burn down my neighborhood because you know it should all be accessible. You know, I've gotten letters like that because they were angry about the restrictions. Well, and the fact that we were trying to close there was an illegal entrance that that at the end of my neighborhood, and it was it was put by our put there by our former city councilman. Um, Tom Labanche, who's now deceased, and he did it illegally because the stipulation on giving that land and the Hollywood sign was that there would never be an entrance to the park in the neighborhood. And there was a very good reason for that: is it's, it's a purely residential neighborhood. I mean, there was there's a grocery store and a cafe, and you know, a couple of little businesses, but basically, it's houses. And we are not set up as a park. We don't have you know, bathroom facilities, we didn't want to put bathroom facilities in. So, you know, people were just coming and it wasn't a problem until Tom basically told everybody to come up here and hike to the sign. And they didn't go to the place where you should hike, which is Bronson Canyon, just east of here, which is part of Griffith Park and they have sands, and they have, they have children's playgrounds and they have hiking trails, but it's just a little bit to the east. And so it's not this dead on view of the sign. The reason there's a dead on view of the sign from my neighborhood is, as I said, it was our billboard. So it was, so it had morphed into something else. All of a sudden we were getting thousands of cars a day. And these are, you know, narrow streets. They're not even really two-way because they, with parking, you have to pull over so somebody can pass you. So there were these massive traffic jams that went on for hours. People couldn't get out of their houses. People couldn't park in their garages because we were blocking them. Um, But it was just total gridlock for a few years. So we eventually were able to get some limited permit parking on the weekends and on holidays. And that kind of did the trick because, you know, we weren't, like for years we were woken up by people screaming every morning, like around seven o'clock in the morning because they were coming to see the Hollywood sign and they were trying to park and there were other cars and they'd get into accidents. And, you know, they were also a lot of them parking illegally, So it was just this incredible congestion in a tiny residential neighborhood that couldn't handle it. So that's why people get really angry. They they say, "Well, well, you should have known about this when you moved there. And we couldn't, I mean, even when I moved here 18 years ago, it wasn't a problem. It really wasn't a problem until GPS became ubiquitous because people didn't know how to get here. And then and then our city councilman basically would go on TV and say, everybody hike to the Hollywood sign, see you in Beachwood Canyon. And then everybody would come up here and, you know, you're talking, you know, at that point is like, you know, 10,000 cars. So it's still really bad in areas Um, They're, You know, they've done a few things to mitigate it. But basically, you're talking about a very dangerous hillside neighborhood that can't handle the congestion of all these cars and tour buses.
0: I remember, I don't think it's not the same example that you just mentioned, but I remember someone breaking and then trying to climb the Hollywood sign. I don't know if it was a couple of years ago or when it was. Oh, it's
1: happened. Yeah, it's happened quite a bit. That's illegal, isn't it? It's illegal. And and they're, you know, now, but the thing is that they didn't use to enforce it very well. So, you know, people would get let off with a warning. Now you will be arrested. And um, they needed to do that because it's a high security area. So um, that's, I think there's other stuff going on up there, which I don't really want to talk about, but it is. It Dang,
0: is high, I was going to be to next it, question. It's, <laughs> it's
1: a, yeah, well, you know, we could talk about that or we could talk about Howard Hughes. But
0: oh yeah, I, we've is, got to talk about Howard Hughes. It
1: is a, it is a high security area. Um, so the, the sign has all kinds of loudspeakers, it's wired. So even when I've been up there legally because I've gotten permission, they 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 harass you nonstop. They're like, When are you leaving? When are you leaving? And it's over the loudspeaker. They say, Are you going now? I'm like, wait, you said I had an hour. I mean, they get you on and off really quickly because they do not want people on the Hollywood at the Hollywood sign. But it is possible if you're, you know, if you're filming to, to go there with permission, but you have a guide, you have very strict rules, and it's it's actually very scary for me. I can't do it anymore because you have to climb down. When you do it legally, you climb down from the fire road up above. So there, it's fence, they open the fence and then you have to climb down on a rope. And I think when the sign was being built, because I have film of that, um, it wasn't as steep. so people were walking up to the sign with you know lumber on them. Um, but you couldn't do that now. It's a much, much more sheer drop. So it's very dangerous when you climb up and it's really scary when you climb down on that rope.
0: Why is, it, why is it so private like that? That's really weird. That's kind of scary just to be like, you can be kind of like threatened or not threatened, but kind of like pushed out a little bit so you can't actually enjoy the actual sign.
1: Well, it, you know, they built it in, uh, it's on this kind of natural ledge. That's why it looks so charming is they didn't, you know, they didn't have the kind of bulldozers that would have leveled that land. So it follows the natural contours of the land, which is really the secret of the Hollywood sign. Because it it has that kind of uneven look to it, um, but that's just the way they built it in the twenties. But you know, it was just this unintended thing. I mean, it was it's a rocky outcropping on Mount Lee, you know, which is which is was always a radio tower, um, but it's a very very steep area, and you know, it is a mountain. I mean, we get real weather up there. Um, it's very dangerous. The people, oftentimes people will try to climb up and they can't get down again. And that's the thing is like, it's easier to go up than it is to go down because, you know, you're on your hands and knees. So all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, wait, how do I, how do I get off? (laughs) Um, But I think when they, you know, I I think when people have been arrested now, what they do is, you know, they, I mean, they have a helicopter pad up above, um, but the police will come on the road and, you know, and make you go up on a rope because it's, there's no easy way up or down, but yeah, in the sixties and seventies and probably even fifties, people used to climb, used to go there a lot because it was, uh, it wasn't restricted and it wasn't, you know, a high security area there either. Um, But they have communications equipment up, up above it. So that's the thing it's, it's, you know, part of the infrastructure now.
0: Can I ask about Howard Hughes and how you even came across? I wish you
1: would because I actually did a lot of research for this. All right, cool, sweet, (laughs) thanks.
0: Oh, I didn't know. I didn't want to be like, I knew you mentioned you no, knew no, some stuff. but no, I, yeah. I hadn't
1: written about him since 2009, so I was like, I better read some stuff because Where, it's
0: been a while. <laughs> where'd you first hear about him? I'm I'm fascinated with this guy right now. I just, I, I can't believe I've never heard of him before, but when you start looking at his really? life, I mean-
1: you never heard of Howard Hughes before?
0: I mean, I might've heard of the Spruce Goose in a history class for like five minutes, but not as as centric as he became. I mean, he not, I wouldn't say he built Vegas, but he practically owned most well, of he, it, or at least a good portion. Pretty- Pretty much
1: did. I mean, he was—he changed Las Vegas into what it is today. I mean, at one point he owned five hotels there, hotel casinos. Um, but before that, so Howard Hughes was born in 1905, and he came from Texas. Um, and people think people thought, well, he's an oil heir. He wasn't an oil heir. His dad did something even better than that. He invented a a rotary bit for oil drilling. And it was a really, became a really essential tool for oil drilling. And instead of selling the technology or selling the the bits, he would rent them. So he amassed this amazing fortune on his invention. And Howard Hughes was his only son. Um, Howard's mother was a socialite. And by the time Howard Hughes was 18, both his parents were dead, and he had a million dollars. So this was in 1925. So a $1 million dollars was a lot of money in those days. And he was a he was a, an only child who wasn't allowed to have friends uh, because his parents were very concerned with his health and they were very germaphobic. And he became a massive germaphobe. In fact, he's really a poster child for severe OCD, which he had all his life. Um, but he also you know, was incredibly talented as an engineer. He went to Caltech. He had an engineering degree. He went to Rice, but dropped out, but he was an aviator of immense talent. And he was flying planes by the time he was 14 years old. And he wound up setting major um, speed records for flying. He set the transcontinental record. He he, he, He set the world record, flying around the world in 91 hours. And, you know, this was when he was in his thirties. So he was like, you know, uh, he was like Charles Lindbergh, but he was also so much more than that because he was an aeronautical engineer and he built planes. So it wasn't, Spruce Goose was, you know, the last of the many planes that he developed or built, but you know, his company was Hughes Aircraft, which still exists. And um, he just did a lot. At the same time, he had a parallel career in Hollywood. And I always wondered why he became a Hollywood producer and director. And it, it didn't come out of nowhere because his uncle, was a very, uh, whose name was Rupert Hughes, was a very, very well-known director and screenwriter and producer. And so when Howard Hughes came out here at 18 with a million dollars, He came, you know, not just to be a a great flyer. He came to conquer Hollywood and he did a lot. I mean, if you if you've seen the movie The Aviator, did you ever watch that movie?
0: I haven't seen The Aviator, but I'm aware of it with Leonardo DiCaprio, Scorsese.
1: Everyone who's interested in Howard Hughes should watch The Aviator because it really does a very good job of of telling his life story, Um, including all of the, the tragedies that I will talk about. But um, yeah, he had these parallel careers and amassed this amazing fortune because, you know, and then it got even bigger during World War II because he was essential in the war effort. Um, He, you know, he had a congressional medal and he was charged with building planes to transport troops. And that's what the Spruce Goose was. It was a a military transport plane. And unfortunately it, it only flew once because it was actually too big to fly reliably. But you know he he really did have have vision and um and he was just, I think he was really unparalleled as a pilot because he didn't seem to have any fear, which is why he got involved in so many plane crashes. I mean, he was in in devastating plane crashes. and of course, these, you know, took their toll on him personally. but yeah, his his, um, you know, I mean, so the first movie he ever made was Hell's Angels. and actually, the Aviator shows how he did that too, and that he was filming for several years on that one. So that that came out in 1930, uh, 1930, and then he also made the original Scarface in 1932. So he had a track record, and then eventually he wound up buying RKO, which was the you know very struggling movie um, studio. It's probably the weakest of all the major studios. And so he was able to take full control of RKO by 1949.
0: And he ended up running that into the ground, didn't he? he
1: yeah. He, oh, of course, because he was so crazy at that point. Well, what he did was he, he fired everybody, first of all. He fired seven For
0: communism. People. That's so yeah, crazy exactly. to me. It's such well, a he, departed then, no, time. He, he,
1: fired, he fired people, I think, in, for economics as well, because in those days, you know, people weren't freelancers in the film industry the way they are now. They weren't contract. So you 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 were fully employed 365 days a year by the studio, and you know even though these people weren't making a huge amount of money, it got very expensive, especially with the actors because they were making better money um, than the, the the construction people and the you know the grips and the cameramen. But still, it was expensive to have a, a vertically integrated studio, which is what he had. So he fired 700 people, and then he persecuted the rest, you know, he shut down production for six months just so that he could investigate people's politics because he was a virulent anti-communist and he wanted to weed out all the commies, you know, and that was really the, in 1949, that was very much, you know, the, the McCarthy era. So, um, you know, or maybe it was a little before the McCarthy hearings, but it was, it was, a, you know, the Red Scare was, was in full swing. So he was part of that but he, you know, Hughes was somebody who, I mean, there's never been anybody like him until recently, because I see a lot of parallels between him and Elon Musk.
0: I saw, I I saw somebody put up a picture of that.
1: Yeah. I think that he's kind of modeling his career after Hughes's in some ways because of the aerospace thing, you know, they were both aerospace pioneers. Um, but you know, I don't think that, um, that Elon Musk has massive brain damage the way Howard Hughes did.
0: It's a a billionaire mentality, which is that you can just, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Um, and that's kind of like with Elon Musk, where he's like, you can't go build a rocket to Mars. And he's like, oh, I bet I can. And then you just kind of, you just start doing these things, which a lot of people like us will don't, we don't have the opportunity to be able to do something like that, but we probably would if we had billions of dollars. I mean, I would buy banana nut from Baskin Robbins and stock it up in a, my hotel if I owned one.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they're both eccentric and all that and having a lot of money does give you a lot of power, but. You know i think they both had their personalities before all of this happened i mean it was really this kind of egomania that made it possible i
0: would say which personality are we talking about with howard hughes because the beginning howard hughes ain't the same one that comes out in the end
1: right but he was he was an odd duck even the, at the beginning i mean you know you're talking about a kid who didn't have any friends for one thing he wasn't allowed to play with other children and, um, and he was terrified of germs. And, you know, he had, the thing that was, what terrified him later in life was that, you know, he was, he was afraid of being committed to a mental institution for, and it was because of his OCD, which was out of control by the time he was 40 years old. But, you know, th- no one knew how to treat it. I mean, that was, that was the least of his problems. His main problem was that he had catastrophic brain injuries from three plane crashes and a car crash. Um, and you know, major, major head injuries. And, you know, I mean he'd had x-rays and they knew there was there was a lot of damage. But the 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 one that should have killed him was was the one that you will also see this in the movie, the horrifying one, where he crashed an XF eleven in nineteen forty six, crashed onto the the um, LA Country Club golf course and destroyed three houses. I think only one person on the ground was killed, but you know, these houses, which were really nice houses, went up in flames. Um, and he, his injuries were like, he broke ribs. He broke his back. He had, obviously he had brain injuries. He the, it was so catastrophic that his heart shifted from one side of his chest cavity to another, to the other um and he wound up with pain like chronic pain that was unbelievable for the rest of his life
0: sure, because he got, people say he got addicted to the pain medicine he um, was
1: but the thing is that people people thought oh well you know that they, they made an manic out of it but then there was a forensic study done by a doctor who was a pain management specialist and he said actually howard hughes got Excellent medical care. It was really cutting edge because, you know, they didn't know how to manage chronic pain back in the 1940s. They'd never seen. I mean, this this guy was he could not have survived if it hadn't been for the opiates he was taking. So they kept him alive for another 30 years, which is absolutely incredible, because this was the crash that should have killed him. I mean, he he also had burns like massive burns on on his body that required skin graft grafting and skin grafting was was not really very well established at the time so he had state of the art medical care and he survived but the only way he didn't die of the pain was because of the opiates because apparently what happens is your adrenaline if you had to deal with the pain without the opiates your adrenaline would kill you so he you know it's just like you you know you're revving an engine you know, and got your foot on the floor and the brake on forever and then that you know the car won't last and you wouldn't last either so he would have died of the pain if it hadn't been for the opiates but yes he was addicted to them busy couldn't live without them
0: you come out with a positive review on howard hughes or a negative one and the reason why i ask that is because i have a specific question about the conqueror and depending on if you have a positive or negative view on howard hughes you understand why he became a uh, an advocate for environment, not environmentalism, but trying to stop nuclear testing from happening. I've heard two different perspectives on this. One was because of all the people that developed cancer on the Conqueror set. And then the other one is because he's a germaphobe and he was very afraid that nuclear testing, he was going to somehow get sick from that. Because a lot of people in Vegas were experiencing um, some effects from the nuclear testing that was happening. So I like to think it's because he felt bad about the whole Conqueror film because he ended up watching it on repeat after he bought so many copies. I think he spent $12 million or something buying up all the copies of it. And I would just think if you're watching it on repeat, you're not doing it because you enjoy the thing. You're doing it because you obviously – got a bunch of people sick
1: right yeah that's something that i'm i don't really know his his you know know what the conqueror is right yeah but i don't really know i don't really know his reasons um you know I, i imagine that this ocd had something to do with it um but also he but he was so he was so right wing it's funny that he didn't embrace whatever it was that the government was doing because you know he he had this fear of of communism that really overrode wrote a lot of other things but you know i have a very i mean i admire him the problem was that like a lot of really rich people no one could rein him in you know you need to have somebody to say that's crazy you have to stop and nobody ever was able to say that and that's why he was you know i was i was alive when he died and no one had heard anything about Howard Hughes for a long time. And then there was this huge expose after he died in 1976. And I think it was in Rolling Stone because I had a subscription to Rolling Stone. And I used to read it cover to cover. But it was about his last days. And he was, you know, he was living at the Sands, I believe, in, uh, in Las Vegas. And um, he, which he owned. And, you know, he was like 74 pounds. He was 6'4", by the way. And he, you know, he was starving because he wouldn't eat anything because it was germophobia. And, you know, there was just boxes of Kleenex everywhere because that was everybody who dealt with them had to like have like 50 Kleenexes on their hand so they couldn't touch anything directly. And he was using Kleenexes. I think he may have been wearing Kleenex boxes for shoes. For, for shoes, I, yeah. I, was that true? Yeah, I yeah. didn't know if I made that. That was probably my favorite part. Um, But I was like, did I make that up? Because that seems really weird. But, you know, he was a mess. I mean, when he died, he, you know, they did the autopsy and they found broken hypodermic needles in his arms. But, you know, his doctors said he was a very, um, very obstinate patient. I mean, he, you know, to the end, of course, he was, the problem was that his his paranoia had gotten to the point where, you know, he, he didn't know what he was doing, but he was still able to Protest and to say no to his doctors, so they weren't able to care for him. They weren't able to feed him the way they would have, um, you know. And then eventually, he wound up in Mexico, and then he was he decided that he had to go to Houston, and he died on the plane on the way to Houston. Kind of like the Shah of Iran, he did the same thing. And this is the thing: when you're that rich and you have a plane, you can you know decide that you know you can't die. You know, in spite of what the doctors tell you, they, you know, they don't accept a terminal diagnosis. So you go doctor shopping and you get worse and worse and worse care and you get much worse care than a regular person would because you're able to surround yourself with yes men.
0: That's funny you said that because that's a – have you ever played the game Fallout or probably not played the game, but there's a game called Fallout New Vegas about a nuclear wasteland and you're basically in Las Vegas. But they based the main character, Mr. House, on Howard Hughes's life, and I didn't know that. And so when I started looking into Howard Hughes and I discovered him, I was like, wait a minute. That's this guy and one of the – most of all the robots in that facility in his little building are called Yes Men. And it's, it's just interesting because you look, start looking into Howard Hughes. He was the Howard Stark from Iron Man. That's Stan Lee. That's his inspiration and also for Robert Downey Jr.'s character as well, too, the actual Iron Man. But there's literally a figure out there. Imagine having billions of dollars or however much money he had, all these riches. Best medical you could possibly ever get and they can't help you. You are basically just kind of slowly, I wouldn't say killing yourself, but I mean, his germophobia turned to a point where it was paradoxical germophobia, which is that you're clean, you don't have to bathe, you don't have to do anything like that, but everything around you is now dirty and you have to work on that.
1: Right. And then there's another thing. What really did his mind no favors was that he had, he had had syphilis in the thirties and in those days, you know, they, they didn't have antibiotics So antibiotics didn't really come into use until World War II, and they weren't available until after World War II for the civilian population. So he, you know, around 1930, he was treated for for syphilis. And in those days, what they would do is they would use arsenic, you know, arsenic and mercury, I think, and they would, and it didn't work, but it usually kind of made it go dormant. And so he was okay for a while, but it came back so when syphilis so by the time he crashed that plane in 1946 he already had tertiary syphilis it was start it was in his spine it was starting to get into his nervous system and his and his brain but because his injuries were so catastrophic they couldn't fix his injuries and treat him for syphilis at the same time so after 1946 it, he wound up with neurosyphilis, so it was, you know, not only incurable at that point, but it was it was affecting his mind and it was affecting everything that he did. And that's where the paranoia comes in. incredible and you lose the ability to organize your thoughts. So it wasn't like he was stupid, but you know, he it was it's kind of like CTE. Yeah. You know, you you lose your organizational skills, um, and and so that really you know, was, was the reason he was so weird for the rest of his life because he had tertiary syphilis.
0: What were some, I guess, things about Howard Hughes that you might, might, might might've liked and might not have liked. I mean, the womanizing, did you ever look into that? I can't tell how much of that is real or not. He was
1: ridiculous. And the worst thing was that he was like the worst kind of womanizer because he was a jealous, he was jealous (laughs) of the women that he was cheating on. So, you know, he had all these, you know, movie star girlfriends. I mean, you know, and oh, this is where I should get back to the Coenga Peak property because the reason he had that land was that he wanted to marry Ginger Rogers and he wanted to, and you know who Ginger Rogers was, right? She was a very famous movie star, Fred Astaire's dance partner and all that. And he wanted to marry her and he wanted to build a house up on that land. Uh, at the top of Mount Lee, and she realized that you know he was already like super OCD and had to count his peas and all that kind of stuff. But she t- broke off the engagement because she realized that he was going to hold her prisoner up there. Like she realized that that was his his, his ultimate goal was probably that she she would be a prisoner in this house because it was so remote. I mean, it was on top of a mountain. He he sued the city for the right to build a road and put utilities through because he said I can't build anything up there unless you let me build this road. So he he never did build the road, but he got the the whoever owned the land if it had passed into private hands they would have been able to you know put McMansions up there because they they had the right to do utilities and all that and the road. So um, but he accused he would accuse Ginger Rogers and all these other women he went out with of being unfaithful to him while he was unfaithful to her you know or them and so it was really um it was really ironic and ginger rogers actually did break off the engagement i think it was it was after one of his plane crashes probably an earlier one i think it was it was uh it, it might have been when he crashed in lake mead so that was another one um but she just you know brought back all the jewelry and threw it at him um, while he was like bandaged in a hospital bed because he'd been cheating on her, you know? But he didn't see that as a problem. He was, and he was not like the kind of person who would lie, about it. he's like, yeah, so what? You know, I had a one night stand. I had, he had many one night stands, but he, at the same time, he really wanted to marry these movie stars. And then of course they got to be lesser, lesser actresses, but he was still, you know, getting engaged and getting married. And it never really worked out because, you know, when you've got, when you can't live with somebody because <laughs> you're a germaphobe, it kind of makes the marriage a little stressful. But, you know, he 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 wanted everything. And that I, I like the fact that he thought big. You know, I admire that. I admire the fact that he didn't see anything as an obstacle. Most people wouldn't say, oh, you know, I have a degree from Caltech. I think I'll go build an airplane. You know, most people wouldn't have the the the, the nerve to do it. It's not just about the money. It's about the fact that he actually didn't see anything as an impediment to his, his creativity. What about
0: uh, his obsession with Jane Russell?
1: Well, you know, I didn't even know who
0: she was before Howard. I saw it. I was like, oh my God, Jane Russell. I was like, who is this? And then find out Howard Hughes is just, I mean, I don't know what film it was, but they counted like a number of boob shots because he was so obsessed with her. I was like, is this guy real? I feel like this is starting to be myth now
1: no well apparently well she was very well endowed and he he i think he built her bra yeah under he he built the underwire bra bra,
0: yeah that's crazy um, that's crazy i
1: um you know she was under contract at rko and he wanted to make a big star out of her and you know she i mean she wasn't a great actress so she knew that she knew the name of the game i mean she had to capitalize on her on her looks and on her you know gigantic breasts and he was all great with that, but I don't think they were ever involved. I think he was interested in being involved with her. I don't think they were, but yes, she was his protege. And he, you know, he really did make a star out of her because she got a whole career out of it. And, you know, I remember like, you know, when she was an old lady, she was doing commercials, you know, on TV. And I think they were bra commercials actually, Um, you know, and I remember that's what I knew her from was, it was like, it was like girdles, I think. Maybe it wasn't even bras, but it was, you know, some sort of lady's undergarment. So she had this whole lucrative career as a shill for, for girdles, I think.
0: Did you? That's at least she kept it going. Um, yeah. That's, that's oh, good yeah. for and her. She
1: looked, I mean, as a much older woman, she still looked great. You know, she looked amazing. She didn't need that girdle. She, <laughs> <laughs> she, she looked amazing.
0: <laughs> Did you ever hear about the Baskin-Robbins story with Howard Hughes? No. I mentioned it earlier, but you kind of yeah, looked at did. me like yeah, I didn't I, like, I meant- yeah. So what? close when he was living at the Desert Inn, what happened was he used to eat this favorite ice cream and sit in his movie. He had his own movie studio basically in his hotel. And um, like you said, he blacked out, taped all on the windows and everything. Well, he had a favorite ice cream that was banana nuts. And when he asked the hotel to call and give them like get an order of banana nut and they said they were discontinuing the flavor. So he bought 350 gallons worth of the flavor before it ran out. So after all this process of a week of this banana nut coming from Baskin-Robbins to him, he decides like when it arrives that, oh, I don't want banana nut anymore, I would like French vanilla. So they tossed out like hundreds of thousands of dollars on this ice cream. He ended up getting his French vanilla and they had this banana nut ice cream stuck in their freezers for, I mean, up to a year. And eventually they started going out in buckets and anyone that had a bucket or anything that they could, they could bring to carry this ice cream and you got free banana nut ice cream because the hotel was just tired of having it there they tried to sell it to their guests nobody was buying it um but yeah he just to me I was like that's that's the craziest thing hey can you that flavor's going to be discontinued hey tell them put a special batch for me 300 gallons or whatever and then you know have it sent over then it gets there and he's like nah I actually just want french vanilla
1: but you know I don't think that it would keep I mean why didn't he just get In the recipe he could, have, he could have bought the recipe and had somebody make it for him. But
0: that's Howard Hughes. He could have donated to cancer research or done any of that to help with the John Wayne stuff instead of buying all the production films. He was just this – I don't think he – like there was very like strategic things about him, creating a brawl for someone that you're attracted to. I don't know how you even think about like I'm going to use my engineering skills and put this thing together. But then you look at like the the John Wayne film – He bought it all and then didn't donate to cancer research, but spent however much money on just getting rid of the film so you're not traced to it. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical himself in a way, which is makes him even more fascinating.
1: Well, you know, I think I honestly think that the syphilis was kicking in at that point. That's that's a really good example of not being able to think logically, you know.
0: That's what happened to Al Capone. He was a
1: really brilliant person. You know, he was a brilliant person. But you know, when you can't organize your thoughts and you don't have any logic, it, 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 it hurts you in the end. So that's why he wound up so isolated, you know, and he was surrounded by these yes men and he'd fired all the people that he had, you know, had, had, had helped him earlier in his life who were competent. And, and that's what often happens. You know, that, that, you see that over and over again, you know, it's, and it's very much helped by great wealth because you can, you can isolate yourself and insulate yourself from what you don't want to hear
0: what about the loans do you know about the loans that he gave Mm -mm. Uh, well he gave a a loan it's kind of funny for me because i I just find it fascinating i'm a history guy but specifically it's like probably the 60s and 50s onwards to the more relative times today mostly kennedy nixon type stuff um but he donated to richard nixon um it's actually one of the things that people speculate was the Watergate, because nobody really knows why Besides Nixon trying to hide something about the Watergate burglary, um, the plumbers don't even know. They never said anything about what specifically they were looking for. There's the Pentagon Papers with Daniel Ellsberg, and there's a bunch of stuff. But one of the theories which Nixon did speak about, which was Howard Hughes' loan. Howard Hughes had donated a large sum of money, I think $200-something thousand, dollars, to Richard Nixon's campaign, but through his brother— Don Nixon. I think his name's Don Nixon. And Don Nixon used it, used it to start a burger chain. called. The, and I swear to you, their, their main thing was the Nixon burger. Uh, I,
1: I never knew that.
0: Yeah, I have it on my YouTube. If you check out shorts, there's a whole shorts on it. But the crazy part about that story is that when Nixon went to go visit his brother's burger chain, uh, they got these fortune cookies out. You know, communism, they're all having a laugh at their serving fortune cookies as a joke well they open it up and in the fortune cookie said ask him about the loan and if you look up nixon and the nixon burger you'll see photos of nixon nixon standing in front of a banner and the banners in a whole other language and he's laughing thinking it's a big joke when really someone was kind of throwing him out there saying hey he took a large sum of money from a wealthy billionaire and it wasn't until later but everyone kind of knew it was howard hughes which i just find fascinating again that's how i end up discovering howard hughes so
1: what so how odd. I mean, so what, whatever happened, I mean, how are you know that his money was diverted into a burger chain, do you think?
0: Oh, 100 percent. Most of his stuff is tax evasions. He talked about building a community in Las Vegas and never even got the community up and going. It's, I mean, that's, that was him in general. He got so much of his money of buying land and property. A lot of that was just like tax evasion stuff as well, too. But, yeah, he, he donated specifically to his brother knowing that it was going to go into something. But it wasn't just like – it was kind of like some of it went there, and then a lot of it went to Nixon's campaign. He also donated to Kennedy, too. He, he supported both guys. He kind of saw it as there's two horses in this race. Why don't I bet on both? So either way, I'm coming out with something.
1: Right, right. Well, that was smart. Oh, so getting back to the land though, which is how I, you know, I mean, of course I knew about Howard Hughes and I knew about his sad, pathetic death, but you know, the, the land. So what happened was people, people, you know, contributed money. And I think Hugh Hefner did too, to buy this piece of property and then add it to the parcel that that Hollywood land gave to Griffith Park. And so now it's all protected and they're not going to be houses up there um but then so nothing happened so that was you know it was stupid of the city not to not to buy it for six million dollars and then to go begging us to buy it for 22 million but it all ended in 2009 and then i didn't think about howard Hughes for years until after i joined a club a sports club right on the other side of the hollywood sign in toluca lake so this is right near warner brothers studios So there's Warner Brothers, there's Forest Lawn Drive, and then there's an apartment complex um, and the cemetery. So between the apartment complex and the cemetery, there is a beautiful vacant lot. Like it's probably, you know, four acres or something like that. And I would look at it from across the street and think that's really nice. There are little pepper trees on there, actually quite big pepper trees. And it was green and obviously somebody was keeping it watered. There was a fence around it, but it was open. And then I was told in confidence that the land belonged to the Hughes estate. So they weren't doing anything with it and they've never developed it. But a few years ago, this guy drove a camper up on it. Like he had like a, it was a big, you know, mobile home, basically. He drove up and he decided to live there with his kids and he planted a vegetable garden and he was all settled in and then finally somebody called the Hughes estate and these guys in suits showed up but he was evicted the guy was evicted and his kids and then they finally locked they put a gate on there and they locked it and it remains locked but I was just amazed that he had this other parcel of land on the other side of Mount Lee on the valley side of Mount Lee and it made me wonder how much other land he has. Although I don't think he could have any more land on that slope because it's all either that apartment complex or the cemetery, which is forest lawn, and it's very big. But yeah, it's now the Hughes estate is now all about real estate. And I don't know if you know this, but you know he's it has significant holdings in Las Vegas, yeah,
0: including they- in,
1: including I believe I believe that it still owns the 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 terminal of the airport. And he, was, he was the
0: only person to have an airport named after him while he was alive. Really? Yeah.
1: I guess, yeah, with John Wayne, they named it after him after he died. What about Bob Hope? No, Bob Hope, the, the Burbank Airport, which is now officially called Burbank, but it was called the Bob Hope Airport. That was named for him while he was still alive.
0: Someone's got to talk to Mental Floss about yeah, their interesting no, facts about how He's.
1: You know, he owned a huge amount of that land. So he owned all that land in Toluca Lake. And he lived there. So he was Mr. Toluca Lake. And so he gave the land for the airport and they named it after him when he was alive. Because he was, you know, he lived to be 101. Jesus. Yeah.
0: Man, great genetics on that guy.
1: I know. And it was funny because he had, like, he'd always had mistresses. I mean, he was married. His wife, Dolores, was a, you know, she knew what was going on. But he he, he basically would not have survived in today's environment because he played around constantly. And he had all these mistresses. And even at the end, like almost until the end of his life, when he was, you know, in his nineties, he had one, one mistress left and she was local. She lived in Toluca Lake. She was a nice little old lady who lives in Toluca Lake and he used to visit her. But yeah, he never, you know, that was just part of his life to be a philanderer. And, um, and, you know, the, the deal for, for Dolores was that she got whatever she wanted. She got, all the money she wanted, no questions asked. And she was able to, you know, build incredible houses and she built a church because she was a very devout Catholic. So the church that she went to and to look alike was completely, you know, it's the church of Dolores Hope. I mean, it was, it was built with her money and it's uh, the St. Charles Borromeo. It's considered one of the most beautiful churches in the diocese, but you know, it was all her.
0: From a history perspective, I like to look at all the stuff that Howard Hughes is interesting. It's just a person that honestly just didn't care. He just kind of did stuff, which I find fascinating. But a lot of the stuff would not age in today's time if you talked. And I don't find it good that he did some of these stuff. I just find it fascinating that there was this person that literally, I mean, he could put young girls wanting a Hollywood career into a hotel. And it's like just to see that manipulation. I mean, we still deal with problems like that today. But you you can't, from a history perspective, you mention them. I started noticing, like you mentioned, bad comments. People would put like on some of the clips, like how dare you or all this. I'm like, well, he's a real figure. I didn't create the myth of Howard Hughes. I'm just surprised we don't ever talk about him or he's not as well known, at least to my generation.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that was the when The Aviator came out and I looked it up. It was 2004. I mean, I'm sure that was the first time most people had, had knew anything about his life. But yeah, he was well, you know, he was paranoid. And the thing is, that those were the days like, you know, you could get away with stuff that you couldn't get away with for any amount of money now because the studios would fix things. And they had somebody like, you know, if you crashed your, you were a movie star and you crashed your car, they would fix it. And if you killed someone, when you crashed your car, you know, they would fix that. And and that actually happened with Howard Hughes. That was what this car he was driving he killed. Yeah. He killed a pedestrian. He didn't go to jail for it. Sometimes it's they get someone else to go to jail for stuff like that. But you know, for the most part, you were able to actually go around killing people with your car and not have any consequence. And if you did something that was very indiscreet, you know, they would in and, and it was photographed, they would buy the pictures. I mean, try that today. You can you can't keep yourself from being photographed because everyone's got a phone. You know, everyone's got a phone. You can buy negatives, you know, so that's that's how, you know it was you you had this degree of control and privacy that you you no one has today
0: Do you, you know, know? Who, is his name uh cary grant
1: mm-hmm.
0: and howard hughes they
1: well i knew they know each other were they, they friends? were very close friends uh, very, yeah. if you listen
0: to james elroy you hear about a romantic relationship because apparently there's evidence to support howard loved a lot of people um but somebody this is factual somebody i don't know if it, hughes died before grant or grant died before hughes but somebody sent flowers to the other person. Well, no, I funeral. think
1: Hughes died first.
0: So C- Cary Grant sent, or no, yeah, Cary Grant sent flowers to uh, Howard Hughes's funeral and had his name on it. Just, it just said Grant on it, and it was a beautiful bouquet of red roses. Apparently.
1: Wow. wow. I don't know. It's interesting yeah. to me. I didn't. I mean, yeah, know. Like, it's just. It's too bad about his. You know, his brain functions because he had a lot going for him, and unfortunately, he was. But he was always really paranoid. But I, I I do think that was the head injuries and the syphilis talking. He wouldn't yeah. have been that way, um, you know, but he's he spied on people. He, he You know, he spied on all the women. He, I mean, these are women who weren't he wasn't even involved with a lot of times. I mean, he had, you know, I mean, he had them spied his on best 24/3. friend
0: was a CIA agent. So Robert Mayhew, I mean, that guy's name comes up in the Kennedy assassination multiple times, only because the mob stuff that's. He worked for the CIA as a cutout to connect mobsters, and that's where who's the Mormon connection that helped Howard Hughes get all these casinos? That's Mayhew. That was his mm-hmm. job oh, for the CIA. Oh, he was CIA. the first
1: Mormon because that's you know all of his all of his staff at the end were Mormon
0: men. No, no, no. Mayhew's Mayhew's not Mormon, but he talked to the Mormons. He Howard Hughes. There's a memo talking about can you talk to the because he I think Howard Hughes' train of thinking and it's so smart. Which is that the Mormons, they're based on like good ethic, good work, and people that you can trust around money and things of this sort that they weren't going to steal from you because of their values. Even though the mobsters were skimming still money off the top of Howard Hughes' casinos a little bit, but the Mormons really helped out Howard Hughes kind of disconnect from the mob a little bit and kind of exclude the mob out of Las Vegas, which I just found fascinating. I was like, who would have thought of that back in the day?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he really was Mr. Las Vegas, but it's interesting because I think now, you know, when people think about Howard Hughes, I guess they do think about his aviation feats. I mean, it was just amazing how he, he set these world records, but, you know, the, the, his inventions are obsolete. So it really has the basis of his wealth was re- really became land. And, you know, he, you know, he owns a huge amount of land in Los Angeles, too. But particularly in Nevada, he owns a lot of land. So his estate doesn't, so, you know, we're talking its 48 years since he died. And here we are talking about him. I know. I mean, that's what's incredible. I'm getting know? a
0: poster from my back wall back here. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like how many people are actually, you know, in other people's minds 50 years after their death.
0: JFK? You know,
1: probably Elon Musk will be too. I don't think so. Uh, you
0: don't think so? No, I'm not a big fan. I of him. think I, I support well, no. what he does, but I just don't. I I don't know. I think he's a little too hype.
1: Well, I just – I definitely think that, and I don't think I don't think he's as brilliant as Hughes. I think he would like to be, you know, thought of in the way that Howard Hughes was. But if he if he really wants to be, he better get going on his Hollywood career
0: because <laughs> yeah.
1: um, uh, you know I don't I don't see any films coming out. So.
0: Just do what J Edgar Hoover did and have your uh, have a code for how so when the FBI were represented in movies, there was a code that everyone ran by which is the bad guys can shoot as much as they want but they have to miss. but when Hoover's G- men come on stage, they have to be these and that's I, I look back at it, I was like, damn I was like because I, I I film critic, I talk to academics about it and I'm interested in all that type of stuff. Um, but to me, I was like, I am brainwashed to think that these FBI are like super elite super soldiers. they're just people. But that's the films come on screen there. And then you find out that the, at some point, the CIA and the FBI were working with organized crime at a point, And you're just like, wait a minute, they were the bad guys in the movie. What do you mean? And you realize it's just like propaganda and films, which I mean, I'll have you back on to talk about that if you know a little bit about that, because that's a fun subject.
1: Yeah, yeah that would be great. I'd love to talk about that. But I do want to make one more recommendation. You're going to be watching The Aviator, right? Which is essential. Oh, yeah. And it was very good. Leonardo DiCaprio did a great job. But there's another movie made in 1980 called Melvin and Howard. Have you seen that one?
0: I haven't seen that one, but I've heard okay, of that one Okay, so that's the
1: other one you got to see. Um, it is, it's a great movie. It really holds up. I mean, I haven't seen it super recently, but I have seen it since it was made. And um, so, this is about, you know, it's a true story of a guy named Melvin who claimed that he had a copy of Howard Hughes' will, that he had met Howard Hughes as an old man wandering around the Nevada desert. And it turned out to be a hoax, but it's all about this wild story
0: the Mormon and, will.
1: Yes. And Jason Robards plays Howard Hughes, he's great. And it made a star out of Mary Steenburgen. She, this, she was the, I think it was her, maybe it was her first movie. Maybe she'd made other movies, but she was great. I think she won an Academy Award. Um, and then Paul LeMat is the, it played Melvin, but it's a great story. It's wild and it's true. That's the thing you watch the, that's an amazing story. It's so wacky, but it's actually what happened. So, um, and, and you really do get a sense of, of, Howard Hughes's final years because, you know, no one really saw him after 1950. He really withdrew from public life, but he apparently in 1972, he broke his hip. So he was bedridden. And so this guy could not have met him in his later years, but you know, he he really wasn't around. Um, and you, you you see him in this film and he's wandering around. He's this old man with long, scraggly hair. Um, who has a really fondness for the song Bye Bye Blackbird? I remember that they played that. He sang that in the in the movie. But it's very moving, you know? And um I think that when you think about those two movies put together really encompass the span of of Howard hughes's life.
0: Do you believe the Clifford Irving hoax? Um,
1: I don't really have an opinion on it.
0: Okay. Do you know what it is? Yeah.
1: I, I do, but you want to go through
0: it? Um, yeah. So you,
1: you've obviously done the research, and I haven't.
0: Uh, well, I mean, it's the Clifford Irving. Um, I just I've heard varying perspectives. Like I said, I've talked to a few people about Howard Hughes, and you kind of developed this information. Plus, making my little YouTube clips, I'm actually going through documentation to find out what's actually fact and what's not. But the the main thing is, is that Clifford Irving came out with a biography bought by a publishing company, McGraw Hill. Um, that was. A lot of money, but it was about the last words of Howard Hughes. And it was about, I talked to Howard Hughes. Nobody had seen him for years. Um, And he released this book and got all this publicity about it. And then Howard Hughes actually set up a phone conversation and called and they got it on video. You can watch the video of the actual proceeding where he calls into this radio station and he denounces uh, Clifford Irving. He's like, this guy has never met me. I've been in my hotel at the Desert Inn. I haven't left. And there's, everyone believes that that was Howard Hughes 100% because he died not too long after that but it was in 1972, was in January, was when he called. From my memory, it's what I can tell. It might be wrong. It might be a different date. But when uh, a lot of people say that since they don't think it was actually Howard Hughes that called in, but if you Google it, everyone will tell you it was explored as a hoax and actually led to George uh, George Orwell's film, or no, sorry, Orson Welles. F is for fake. If you look that up, Clifford Irving was helping Orson Welles make that, and F is for Fake was about a person that created a hoax to get money, and it turns out the person he was working with was doing that, so he just switched his whole F is to about Clifford Irving. So halfway through F is for Fake, Orson Welles switched it to about Clifford Irving in this Howard Hughes hoax. Just a little background, sorry.
1: That's interesting. I've never seen F is for Fake.
0: I haven't either, but I I heard someone mention it, and I looked it up and saw all this about that. I was like, no way.
1: Oh, interesting. Wow, we're going down a rabbit hole here.
0: Yeah. Now um, <laughs> we can
1: talk about Orson Welles. <laughs> okay. We'll do that
0: another time. But Hope, no, you've given me enough of your time. Seriously, I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. Yeah, a,
1: it's been fun talking about it.
0: Is there a place where people can find your Substack, uh, your WordPress, and then um, your documentary as well, too? I mean, Yes. Yeah. So
1: you can go, the easiest place is to go to my website, which is HopeAndersonProductions.com. And then you can get downloads of my documentaries. You can get you can still get dvds if you're into dvds um and then you can get links to my uh my wordpress blog which is under the hollywood sign at wordpress and then my substack also under the hollywood sign at substack so um yeah i'm easy to find i'm very easy to find but i would really if anybody's interested in the documentaries you can definitely buy them and you can rent them and you can download them
0: and I'm going to link all those in the description. And thank you again, Hope, for giving me the time. Thank
1: and- you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you, Robbie.
0: And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.